0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Scottish Clans Podcast. I'm Clint Edwards and we are going to discuss some responses actually to some of the dialogue that we're starting to pick up. Some of you have been really good to respond on on Facebook, to the, the links that I've posted to the episode, or just have made comments on the Scottish Clans. Facebook page and sent me messages through that. So I really, really appreciate that. And so today's episode, we're going to focus on some of those those topics that you all have brought up. And then I'm, ha- I'm glad that you have and you've made some really good points and in some cases have invited me to think about some things I haven't put much thought into yet. I'm bringing this episode to you from a hotel room once again. Once again, I'm on the road, but I wanted to put out a little something for you. Today it's my twenty-first episode, and I I heard somewhere once again I can't remember where I heard this, but that most podcasts don't make it past the seventh episode. So this is three times better than that. All right, so we're going strong, and we, if you all continue to, like you have been doing to engage in this conversation, go on the either the Podbean app or. Through the through Facebook and and continue to ask good questions and to press this issue a little farther and bring up things that I either didn't think of or didn't have time to to get to. Uh, I sure appreciate that and I think it's really making this a fun experience for me and I hope it is for you too. And I'm going to mention I, and I know this is I don't have time to get to every single conversation I've had on Facebook, but I I've picked three of them out and I want to address them and. And if I didn't get to yours remind me, keep after me. I'm not offended if you if you're persistent and bug me about that if there's something that you really want me to discuss on this podcast that's I'm basically letting your feedback guide where we go with this today and like I said it's you you've had some really good points, so I'm happy to do it well let's let's start off by. A comment from, let's see. Let's start off with Chris McEwen. So he was responding to that mo- my mo- my most recent episode before this, which was the structure of a clan, and it was only part one. This is going to be a series of episodes that I do, talking about how a, a clan functioned, how what was its makeup, and I started off with it, with the first of of this series by talking about the chief and his retinue. And I made a point in there that if we're trying to decide what defines a clan, what are the criteria, the criteria that a kindred needed to have to look somewhat like the Scottish concept of a clan? And yes, I'm using a very broad term there. There's regional differences in how this might have been expressed. An example of that would be the Highlanders had a a Gallic word called duchus, and it was the way that they looked at the land, and it wasn't just who had title to the land. It was, it was a lot more than that. It was this concept of it's our, as a, as a kindred, this land is our heritage, and we have stewards over different parts of it with the chief really over all, but it really is something that we all have a share in, and it's, it's a little bit more nuanced, and it can go deeper than that. And I was just wondering if, for instance, the Border Reaver clans had a counterpart to that. They wouldn't have used that word because they were not Gaelic speakers. I, I don't know, maybe Gaelic hung on for a while in Dumfries and Galloway, which might include... We, we might have had some people in the very far western part of the who, who would consider themselves borderers who may have been Gaelic speakers or may have... Been, but I I think if we're just making a, a along the border with England in general, that was not a Gaelic speaking zone, and so at least at least, I mean maybe if you go back to some pretty early times, but in the in the history of the borders where you really get up and going, and the borders are what we think of when we say border reavers. So mostly between like right after the Scottish Wars of Independence, clear up to James the Sixth becoming James the First. Um, if you during that time period that that would not have been a gallic speaking zone, so they wouldn't have used the word duches, but I wonder if they had some kind of equivalent equivalent of that. And so we're so we get into this discussion of the how the different clans look region by region, and I expect there to be some variety because I expect there to be variety within a region, as these groups of people who banded together either through real or perceived kinship, these were people. They were thinking, decision-making people who would have made decisions and operated in ways that they found best for their situation. So, I, I would expect some variety even within a region, such as the Borders or the, the Northeast, Aberdeenshire, Buck in that area, or the, the Western Highlands and Isles of Scotland. So, you know, let's not get too wrapped up in that, but I was talking about the, the, what Chris McEwan was responding to is me trying to decide what actually is the criteria for a clan. And I said that one of the – I think that one of the criteria I would say is that there is some sort of head of the kindred, this person that the kindred as a whole look to as their leader by virtue of being a part of this group, but also that the chief – viewed himself as such. And this is more than just being the head of a household with a husband, a wife, some kids, or even a grandfather, a, a grandfatherly patriarchal figure who had a paternal sense of obligation to lead and guide this this larger kin group, but you're still not extended out very far. I think with clans, we're, we're talking about somebody who would lead a broader kin group than, than that. And so Chris McEwen responds on Facebook, and he says, "Does a clan really need a chief?" Now, of course, he's he's talking about the McEwens of Otter in the Highlands. Now, there was keep in mind McEwen. That's just that's just son of John, and there were different McEwen kindreds throughout Scotland. But the McEwens of Otter were a distinct Highland clan. The problem with them, and I think where he he was alluding to this. When you get into the history of the McEwans, of Otter, eventually—well, I can tell you not eventually, like vaguely. I can tell you the exact year that I found was 1493, the Campbells assume ownership of their land. Now, this, this happened sometimes. A more powerful kindred would gain legal title to the land, but that didn't mean that the the smaller or less powerful kindred just went away just because this larger kindred got the land. Sometimes the larger kindred would then turn around and give the land, you know, give allow the smaller kindred or clan to be the stewards of this this piece of their larger territory in return that this smaller clan would acknowledge the chief of the larger clan as their feudal superior, and they might even do this through a bond of manrent, which was a, a written obligation saying, hey, yes, I will be loyal to you, I will. if you get in a fight, I'm in the fight too. Sometimes they wrote exceptions into there if there is pre-existing loyalties, especially if they, they would oftentimes bring the king into that. So the McEwans would have been in this relationship with the Campbells. The problem is that after 1493 and when the Campbells are now the, the lords of this area of Otter, you don't have any record of subsequent McEwen chiefs. Now, I was reading a little farther into this, and I'm not convinced that that automatically means that they didn't have a chief because the McEwens were a kindred independent of the Campbells. They weren't a sept or a branch. I mean, maybe later on they can be a sept, because a sept wasn't necessarily related, but a branch was usually their leadership was related to the higher-up overall chief of the kindred. And the McEwans were not a branch of the Campbells in that sense. They were not dis- the, the chiefs of the McEwans were not descended from the lords of Awe or the earls of Argyle. They were their own kindred. And they were tied in with some other clans around that area, like, I believe, I'm, and I'm just thinking this off the top of my head, the Mc- McEwans, I believe, claimed descent from the McLaughlins, from McNeils of Gia, who else? I oh, don't. That was just a, a couple of them off the top of my head. So, so Chris is wondering, do you really need a chief? Because for all, as far as historical records concerned, after 1493, the McEwens did not have one. And and I don't. And he was asking about what Bannerman was claiming or not. And and I think that I'll have to let Bannerman speak for himself. And that's why I give you guys the. Um, I tell you exactly what sources I'm going from. So, in this case, in case you missed the last episode, I'm talking about Kindred Church and Culture, which is a collection of essays from John Bannerman, who has done a lot of research on this this kin-based society of Scotland. So, I'll I'll just I'll just point you back to there and let you kind of comb through that if you would like. the The book is available on Amazon, and I think probably eventually I'll be doing some affiliate marketing and. And actually, giving you some kind of a discount code if you go on Amazon and buy these books. But I, don't, I, I have a lot to, to figure out about this whole thing. Right now, it's just kind of an outlet for a passion of mine. I do hope to monetize this someday, but in the meantime, and, and hopefully that works out well for you guys, as usually that means some kind of a discount if you use a code that I give you. But I'm not there yet, so have patience with me, and I'll try to hook you guys up with some deals in the future. So there's, but that's my source that I went to, and I and I got it off of Amazon. So I, f- so I hope that you guys feel free when I give you these sources to go in and, and read it for yourself, and to, you know you can decide whether you think that my interpretation is correct, or, or do you feel like the author was saying something else. But I wasn't really trying to make any statement with the McEwans, what I was trying to say was that they provided for, for years after that moment when the Campbells acquired their lands, the McEwans provided poets, and historians, and bards to the Campbells. And in fact, the Campbells, the, the Earls of Argyle, they would entrust the, the education of the next generation of the, this chiefly family, they would entrust that education to the McEwens. So it was really a, a position of honor and trust to be in, in the chief's retinue in this way. and in, And so if you have these two different options, either they did continue to have chiefs, and they just weren't recorded because the McEwans lost this status of prominence that they had before, or they did lose their chiefs, they would have probably started following the Earl of Argyle and taking part in whatever he, the direction he went, whether it was into a battle or, uh, I I don't know all the different directions you could do with with that, but they would probably acknowledge him as their chief if they didn't have one of their own, and they're serving in that capacity within his household. So there's that. So, Chris, thank you. Thank you so much for jumping in there. Your, your response was intelligent. It was well thought out. I can tell you've, you've done your own research. He, he provided me a link, everybody. And, Chris, I did follow that uh, on the history of the McEwans. I have not read all the way through it yet but I, I enjoy reading it. I, like I said, I, don't, I really don't have any personal connection to the McEwans that I know of. I just think it's, it's just fascinating. This whole subject's fascinating, and I, I really do enjoy reading that about the McEwans. So I appreciate you providing me that link. Um, the next one I'd like to move on to is John Sinclair, and he's, he's been really cool to kind of had, an, haven't had anything lately, but we had a little um, ongoing correspondence there through Facebook for a little while. And he just strikes me as a pleasant person, the way he was uh, with just through his communication with me. And he asks if I'd ever read about or plan to talk about Henry Sinclair. Now, this is an interesting gentleman here. So he's living in the late 1300s. And in the very last couple years, I think the date I saw was 1398, he is reputed to have led an expedition, an exploration expedition, and actually come over to the New World. And some people have connected this with the Templars and a buried treasure on Oak Island there in, I think it's Nova Scotia, I think. I So the answer to your question, John, is yes, I have read about him. I even just did a quick refresher before I started the podcast today. Just, But I have not really gone in deep into that. I know that there's a lot of historians that express doubt about whether that happened or not, and they're they're doubtful that he did. I, I don't think that that has a heavy, heavy sway on whether I think he did or not. I just, I think sometimes a lot of people, with good reason, I mean, we can't just go after every new idea that we ever hear, and we're just jumping all over the place, which, whichever the new theory is. I think there's some some value in being kind of conservative and holding back and waiting for stronger evidence. On the other hand, I definitely don't need the whole scholarly community of historians to accept something before I open my mind up to the possibility of it being true. So there, there you have it. That's where I stand with Henry Sinclair in a voyage to the new world, possibly almost a hundred years before Columbus made it there. Now we know that Vikings made it there. Now that would that would open up. I th- I think it's not very unbelievable to think that Henry Sinclair did lead an expedition over there. Now keep in mind that this man becomes the Earl of Orkney, and the Orkney Isles. The, we, if any, if even have a passing familiarity with the history of the Orkney Isles. This was. Well, the Orkney and Shetland Islands didn't even come into possession of the Scottish crown until, I think, the mid-1400s, and so you, before that, it was, the, the, it was Norwegian territory, and so you, you have these, it belongs to the same people who did, in fact, push out farther to the Faroe Islands, and then farther than that to Iceland, and then to Greenland, and we know through archaeological evidence that they did actually establish some kind of a settlement in Newfoundland, on the mainland of North America, so the fact that 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 seaway that that route across the ocean going through those stopping by those different island groups or or islands and eventually like that 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 knowledge was kept alive between the first settlement of iceland and and then henry sinclair's time in the late 1300s that doesn't seem unbelievable to me so Anyway, that that's from it. Uh, just stranger things happen all the time, and that just does not seem that far out to me. So there you have it. And and actually, what I was gonna say was, John, this this question that you posed to me, it kind of made me wonder of the possibility in the future of a another. You know, I, I have these mini series of episodes that I do. So I'll have feuds between different clans, and I've done a few of those, and then I've done one on an alliance between the McGregors and McFarlans which I'd like to continue that and and do more in fact I'm thinking about one between the McKays and the and the Forbes they they've been claimed to have a common ancestry so that's an example of another series that I've wanted to do so this your question John Sinclair brings me to another possibility of maybe doing a a, a mini series of episodes on individuals, but yet within the context of the clans, because I want to kind of stay true to the intent of the, the podcast generally. But I think there's a lot of cool places you could go with that. I mean, we could just off the top of my head, we've you, you know you've given me the idea of Henry Sinclair, and then we we would have maybe do one on Summerlid, who was the ancestor of the McRory's, the McDougal's, and the McDonald's. We we could do one on Rob Roy, and to bring it down into the border country, we could do something like on Kinmont Willie Armstrong. There's some really cool history down there too. So, yeah, a mini series on individuals within the clan context of Scotland. So yeah, there we go. Thanks, John Sinclair, for your questions from your correspondence. I really appreciate it. And the last person I want to mention on here is is Neil King. Um, I can tell his his mind is exploring some of the same parts of this subject of the Scottish clans, as mine has been down. He he asked, you know, do you really think that all of the Scottish surnames were clans or were a bunch of them just I think his word was baronial. My word was similar to an English aristocratic family. More more similar to that than they were to the you know, like Highland clans like the Camerons or the Mackenzies. And and I referred him to episode ten, where I go into. It's titled "Is Your Clan Really a Clan," and I dive into that a little bit more. And, and maybe we're, we get into semantics a little bit there. But but he, I mean, he's we've we've had a little bit more cor- correspondence since that original thing that he brought up there. And and I can just tell that this gentleman has he's really doing some critical thinking on how clans work. He actually. Made an interesting comparison to the um, the Sopranos, <laughs> so and the mafias and and you know what maybe maybe there's more connection there than some people would want to admit. I I have not watched the Sopranos. I I am familiar with it's a show on HBO, and I'm a lightly familiar with mafia stuff. I've not really got way into it. And so I'm, and so I'm not as, as spun up on Sopranos enough to fully appreciate his analogy there, but I think it was cool that, that that's what he would do, and another thing that he uh, that, that Neil King brings up, and this is a something that he's been working on, he th- mentioned maybe establishing a blog on this, and I I hope Neil that it's okay if I share this with this question that you posed with people, because I think it was just brilliant. Um, and I don't know enough to to confirm or deny it, and and pick a side on this. But just the questions that you're asking, I think, are awesome. And that is, what contributed more to clan breakdown? Was it we kind of we kind of use the Battle of Culloden, and just because after the the British government, the Hanoverian government won that battle, like that was kind of the nail in the coffin. They were able to exercise some pretty aggressive persecution on the people who had opposed it. Cl- but it's interesting to me that after the Battle of Culloden, it wasn't just the Jacobite clans that suffered. I don't I don't think we really appreciate how many Highland clans, and some of them pretty major, like the Mackay's this, how many of them actually sided with the Hanoverians in that conflict. Yet they suffer because the Hanoverian government turns right around and saying, "You know what? We're tired of this whole clan thing. We're tired of individuals being able to raise their own personal army and bring it against us. Like at the drop of a hat, they can just summon 800 guys, and we're still trying to scramble stuff together." And that was one of the reasons in that 45 rebellion, the Jacobite rebellion. And I might be talking about some stuff that you guys don't have background in, but it's just a, a conflict between who was going to be on the throne—the Hanoverians who'd come over from Germany did have a blood tie. Anyway, I'm not going to go into all that, but then the Stuarts who were ousted off the British throne, and they kind of wanted to try to make a comeback, and they planted their standard in the Highlands. Some of the Highland clans responded and rallied around, and some of them didn't, and the ones who did they actually were very successful to start off with, and it was partly because of this whole clanship and chiefs that could rally men based on kinship, and they're just, yeah, just point us what direction we'll start swinging our swords. So I, the the Hanoverians are so tired of that, and so they clamp down on it super tight, and 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 some people actually, and I've read some some writings on the statutes of Iona, and and that was. I'm bringing up stuff. I know I'm bringing up stuff that some of you don't have any background in at all. Just just do a, a Wikipedia, just do a Google search on statutes of Iona, and that would give you a broad... Th- this is something that the lowland king of Scotland, I believe this happened in the early 1600s, goes out into the isles of Scotland, rounds up some of the chiefs there, some of the very prominent chiefs from there, and forces them... To enter into an agreement, and this is called the Statutes of Iona, and it, it included things like, hey, you have to send your kids, you, you chiefs who have up-and-coming generations who are going to take your place, you must send them to a lowland college or university for their education. And then you can take them. And there's other things that he made him promise to, and some people point to the Statutes of Iona, as kind of leaning forward in the saddle toward the abolishment of the clan system. But it's really easy to point to the Battle of Culloden. So what Neil King brings up here is that, was it the Battle of Culloden or was it the Industrial Revolution? And, and Neil, I'm sorry if you didn't want me to say anything about that. And in the future, I will make an effort to get permission. I did get permission with Chris McEwen. I didn't say anything to John Sinclair or Neil King. So, uh, I'm sorry if that caused any consternation, and I'll try to do better on that in the future. But I hope you take it. I hope you take it in the spirit of me bragging on it on you, and ho- holding you up in a very positive light in the questions that you're asking, and and where your mind's going with this. I thought that you're that the core. I really enjoyed the correspondence with you, and I hope that we can continue that dialogue. And I hope that a lot of you who are listening, who have not chimed in on this yet, I hope you will. I hope you'll think of questions that I didn't cover, things that I I could go into a little bit more detail in, things that sparked curiosity and and so here you have this episode that's really just in response to some of this dialogue that we've we've established through this podcast. So I really appreciate it. All right. Now, here's I'm just going to mention something I think is kind of weird. All right, a lot of you you're going to be interested about your Scottish clan heritage. And I've talked about this in a previous episode on the sources. So you can scroll back through the episode and find the one I did on sources. There's also another one on problem with the sources. And, and I've expressed my view of how I feel about Wikipedia. Um, I, I think Wikipedia is super useful. Do Would I cite it in a scholarly article? No. Do I think that it has a place in researching some of the stuff? Absolutely. It's a great place to get started. And I found that many Wikipedia articles are very well cited. The, the, the footnotes, the references, the sources that they mentioned down below. And I've, I've actually come into contact with some of my wonderful scholarly books that I love. That one on John Bannerman, or, or by John Bannerman, his collected essays that I mentioned earlier. I I've, I've, uh, have a new book that I got for Christmas, actually, called Castles of Scotland by Martin Coventry. I think it's called Castles of Scotland. I brought it with me. It's right here in the hotel. Um, anyway, it's, it's this huge book, and it's just this exhaustive survey of fortified residences, castles, towers, whatever, all throughout Scotland. And I see this. The reason I came to know it is because I'd seen it cited in a lot of Wikipedia articles. And I've got a little project that I'm moving through with it right now doing. But so, so in talking about Wikipedia articles, though, one thing that they've started doing... Is that it doesn't matter whether the clan. So the Wikipedia's got a web got an article on. I think every Scottish kindred. I don't know. They I've I don't know if they've got everyone, but I've seen some articles on kindreds where it says clan this or clan that, and I've never heard of them. It doesn't mean that they didn't really exist. I don't know everything about the Scottish clans. I know this is going to come as a shock to some of you, but there's there's kindreds out there I might not know about but the, so the wikipedia articles on these different clans the one thing they're starting to do a lot now is include the the gallic name for that clan which is fine if the clan is a is 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 a gallic clan and the the members of that clan would have spoken gallic then then zero problem with that but i'm looking up the, the cares. Well, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Care, 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 the clan care. Um, the reason why I'm completely ruining this last name is because when I was growing up, I, I lived in Kenwick, Washington for a little bit. And I had a neighbor that I got to be good friends with. His name was Matt Kerr. And he, so it was spelled K E R R. But he pronounced it like C-U-R-R, like another word for some kinds of, of dog. This is, his name was Matt Kerr, and I just figured that's how you always pronounce it. And then I'm reading this article, and it says, actually, in Scotland, it rhymes with care, C-A-R-E. And in England, a lot of people, it'll rhyme with car, like you're going to drive a car. And so, care. I'm going to try to pronounce a lot of these Scottish surnames the Scottish way. So, care, like I always say Mackay. In in America it's McKay or Mackey in some places where we really have just jacked it up. Anyway, so the Cares, they they've got a the Gallic equivalent of the Cares, and I so okay, let me just go out on a limb whether the borders were Gallic speaking or not. Gallic hung on for a while in southwest Scotland. I think clear up into the sixteen hundreds. Is it possible that in the very western the very westernmost people who could call themselves borderers or border reavers, is it possible that any of them were Gallic speaking? I I I don't think so, but I'd leave the door open. I if somebody showed me an argument that pretty strong that said they thought that there was some western borderers who may have been gaels, I'd I'd say okay, okay. But but I, I don't lean that way. But the problem is, the Cares were from the eastern, like middle to eastern borders. They, they weren't even from that part of possibility. And so the fact that we've got the Gallic version of their name, I think, is weird. Unless you're talking about some completely unrelated Cares surname in the highlands, then maybe, I don't know. But when we talk about the Cares, I think we're mostly talking about the Border Reaver families, kindreds. So, and speaking of the cares, I want to share a quick story with you and then I'm going to be done for tonight because it's late and I got things early in the morning. So there's a, there's an interesting story of a battle, the battle of Melrose. See, and here's, and here's the background to it. Well, let me give you the background to the the cares, the cares, they think, and I didn't see anything super conclusive on this, but they think they're descended from a couple of Norman brothers. Now, if you, if you are not sure what I mean by Norman, the there's a whole episode on this, and so I'm just going to refer you to that episode. The, uh, and I'll give you here if you give me just a second, I'll give you the exact episode number that 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 was, because uh, early on when I first started this podcast, I talked about the different ethnic groups that the, the clans came out of. And so the one I discussed, the Normans, as well as the Norse in, is episode 5, the Norse and Normans. So I'll refer you back to that. Anyway, these two Norman brothers, Ralph and Robert, they are who the different branches of the Kers or the Cares descend from. Now the Cares the were broken into two different Two different, kin, uh, two different branches of the clan. The senior one was the, the cares of Fernyhurst. I, I think that's how you pronounce it. The, cur, the cares of Fernyhurst. They're the senior branch and they descend from the brother Ralph. The cares of now I've always been saying Kesford, but I tried to find a YouTube video where somebody's actually in this place and I all I could I found one and they were calling it Cessford. I'm not really sure, but they are closer to the scene than I am, and so I'm just going to go with Sessford. Anyway, there that's the junior branch, and that's but that's actually the one that I want to talk about a little bit more here, who come into play in this story. So um, let me make sure I get the the uh, okay. So the the two brothers the two Norman brothers are are Ralph and John, and so the the cares of Ferniehurst were descended from Ralph. The cares of Sesford were descended from John, so let me give you a little background. You have James the fifth, and his father is dead. I think he died on the the Battle of Flodden. James the fourth. So you got this boy who, and I I don't know exactly how old he was. If I was a really good historian, I'd have that ready for you. But he was not old enough to be running the kingdom by himself. So he's got this council of regents. And they're taking turns with him, and they're each supposed to rotate who's got the king, the young king. Every three months, they're supposed to rotate. Now, the one that, that the King James is, King James V, James is with Archibald Douglas, the sixth Earl of Angus. And Douglas's three months is up, and he's supposed to hand James over to the Earl of Aaron, who would have at this time been a Hamilton and he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to give him up. And so he just keeps on holding this kid, the, the, the boy king. And he, so James starts to see himself as a prisoner, which basically he is. He doesn't have a lot of freedom about where he's going to go. So he manages to get a, a message out to Walter Scott of Bacluch. I think I'm pronouncing that Bacluch. So you Scots, you have got to help me out with this stuff. Do do like a little video thing and post it to the comments under this episode on the Scottish Clans Facebook page and throw me an ever-loving bone because I'm just, all I see is these names written and I never get to hear them. So anyway, Walter Scott of Bacluch gets this message from the king. Now think about this. What a perfect opportunity to come rise in glory and do something valorous for your kingdom and have your name be held in praise for generations to come because you rescued the king from the Douglas, Arch- Archibald Douglas, Earl of Angus. So so sure enough, he grabs a bunch of his friends, the Elliots, who are also border Reavers. So Scots, Elliot's cares, they're all border Reaver clans, all right? And he's gonna so he grabs he grabs the sends a message out. The Elliots link up with them, and they're gonna go save the king. They find this party of that's who has control of the king the moving in the, they're they're in transition and they're near the they're near Melrose well the earl of douglas the, or the, the earl of angus archibald douglas rather his fighting force is mostly composed or comprised of people from the clan care in fact they're it's not as specifically if you want to get exact with this that's the cares of Cessford. Well, we don't know how many cares there were. And there were probably some other people mixed in with this group too. But we, the, the story comes down to us that Walter Scott had about a thousand guys with him. Now, we're getting into the territory where I actually did my master's thesis on this. It was a comparison and contrast of the Highland clans and Border clans in the context of warfare between 1300 and 1600. And by the way, um, I think I've seen that some of you, I, and I'm assuming this is coming out of the podcast and it's generating some curiosity. And some of you have Googled my name and have found papers that I've written on academia.edu, which I do have my thesis, my master's thesis is, is posted on there. And so if you get an acad, academia.edu account, and it's a free account, I did it while I was working on my master's, you can, and you find me on there, you can, you can read my master's thesis here. The main difference between the Highlanders and the Border Reavers is the Highlanders were overwhelmingly light infantry. Even, even more so, more purely light infantry than their Gallic linguistic kin to the, over in Ireland. Because in Ireland, you would find at least the upper echelon would be riding horses and be we would consider that cavalry or at least dragoons but often often they would fight from horseback as well so 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 that was the the characteristic military characteristic of the highlands whereas on the borders of Scotland they were light cavalry in fact when they were used when they were pulled out of their border context and their little clan feuds or raids across the border they were actually turned out to be fantastic light light cavalry in a in a bigger sense in a part of a bigger army. Anyway, so when you when I say that Walter Scott shows up and encounters this group who have young King James V in their possession, he's showing up as mostly probably a mounted force. But the thing is, so I, like I mentioned, Archibald Douglas is using Kerrs as his force, who are also border Reavers and are mostly probably. It doesn't say this in any of the things. It's just this is the context we're in. They're probably light cavalry. They're sitting on their their horses and they've got their spears, and they're ready to go. In fact, they really were ready to go because when Walter Scott charges at him and tries to break him, and so he can get in there and take and rescue James V, they're unsuccessful. The cares hold fast. And repel this this attack, and then they counterattack, and so the wall, so the the Scots and the Elliots are falling back to get away, and they regroup and turn around and embrace for impact, and they actually hold fast themselves, and in that encounter, and there's this place that's called, oh, what was the name of that? I'm looking at this website. One of the I'm telling you, so I'm. I'm using. I I found a website through the Wikipedia article on the Battle of Melrose, and this is called DouglasHistory.co.uk. That's the main thing. It's slash history slash battle slash Melrose.htm. So, in this account, there's a stone. I think I was reading about it, called Turnagain, and anyways this this place they call it Turnagain, and it's the reason why they call that is because, as the as the Scott forces is in flight and the Cares are doing their counterattack, one of the Elliots turns around with his spear and kills the, the Care of Cessford. And this, this casualty, even though it was committed by an Elliot, it seems like the Cares they have in their minds, they have a Scott name on that casualty. You killed our chief. And so, you know what, so, the, so this develops into a feud that is longer lasting than this. And the cares are patient, and they eventually find Walter Scott in Edinburgh and, Edinburgh and kill him. And so they figure they've got him back. And anyway, this developed into a feud between the two clans. And I'm not, this isn't a history of the whole feud, it's just a, a story from this battle. And a, I, just, I just get into this stuff you know, the, 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 attack, the counterattack, attack the, the fact that these forces are made up of kindreds, and you see this, you know, Walter Scott's coming to his king's rescue, but it, it, and the Elliots are helping him out, and it doesn't quite work, and the Cares are fighting on their, and they are, you know, they're doing who they're loyal, to, you know, these loyalties, and I don't, I'm not saying this critically of anybody, because it's very nuanced what, what team you're going to side with, and so, and you got the, the cur- the care of Kesford or sesford is is killed in the counterattack. And now you got this big feud that's blowing up after it. And I just I don't know why this is so interesting to me, but it is. And I hope it's interesting to you. And I hope you you join with me for future conversations and stories and talking about the nature of clans. I guess this episode was kind of a mix of academia, you know, talking about different individuals and the nature of clans and things, but it was also hopefully a little bit for you, people who get into the storytelling stuff. So I'm grateful that you stuck with me toward the end, the the latter part of that, which was the, the storytelling. And I don't know that it wasn't like this huge gripping plot. I don't know. It was kind of cool. Maybe it was kind of a, a cool plot now that I'm thinking of it. I don't know. I just, there's a story of a battle. So I told it. But when you think about why the battle happened, this, Boy King is feeling like he's a prisoner to Archibald Douglas, sends a message out, and a guy responds, and it doesn't go the way he wants, but anyway, it goes back, It's some cool history, colorful history, Scottish history has no end to fun stories to learn about, to tell, to retell, anyway, um, thank you for those of you, once again, who have struck up a dialogue with me, I, I sure appreciate it. You know what else I'd appreciate? If you're listening to this podcast and you found any value to this, well, you go on whatever platform that you're on and either like or subscribe, depending on which one you're on and, and leave me a review and share it with your friends and leave me the best review you can get. Give me, a, if you're on iTunes, give me a five-star review. I know that there's people who have a much, uh, you can tell they've sunk a lot more money into this and they've got a lot more time. This is a a passion, it's a hobby of mine, it is growing. I've got plans for the future, but but um give me give me a good rating on iTunes and you know what? Aside from the ratings, aside from sharing it with your friends, because usually they have a share button on there somewhere, and you can actually text this or post it on a Facebook page or whatever. But in addition to those things, continue the dialogue with me. My Facebook page is Facebook.com forward slash Clans of Scotland. You'll go to the, the page, it'll say Scottish Clans on it. and I'll have a link to this episode there and you can make comments in the links. you can uh, message me through the Facebook page, however you'd like to do it. but I've sure enjoyed the correspondence that I've had with some of you so far and I, I just encourage more of you to join in on that and let's let's see how much we can learn together. I don't claim to know everything about the Scottish clans, like I said earlier. But I think it's fun to learn, and let's just let's just figure out how this stuff happened, and let's find out what's lore and folklore, and what actually is pretty sound information. But as long as we acknowledge it for what it is, let's have fun in it, right? Let's let's love these stories, let's love these legends that have come down to us, and it's part of our heritage, and and we should enjoy it. And these are our people, and their their blood flows through our veins. And part of the reason we are the way we are today has to do with them. I'm not blaming them for any of my faults, but maybe I'm going to give them credit for some of my virtues. So I hope you enjoyed this. I look forward to having you with me in the next episode. So goodbye for now.